to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. I'm Alex Jones. I'm the director of the uh, Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy, and I want to welcome you all to this brown bag lunch. It doesn't surprise me that we have an overflow crowd. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Goldberg is regarded as certainly one of, if not the preeminent, journalist uh, covering the Middle East uh, for The New Yorker, for New York Times Magazine, for New York Magazine, now for The Atlantic. And he has walked the walk in ways that very few other reporters ever have. Dexter Filkins, his friend, is one of the ones. And he uh, has taken as his theme for today, uh, trying to look at the Middle East as a subject for journalistic enterprise and the way that world has changed. If any of you saw the article that was published just very recently in the Atlantic, um, it's a it's a grim portrait that he paints, and I'm not going to uh, try to speak for him at all, but I think that we have no one who is more qualified to, uh, to talk about the danger of being a reporter in the Middle East or what the future prospects of journalism in the Middle East are apt to be. Jeffrey, we're welcome. Welcome to the Shorenstein Center. We're very Thank glad you. to have you. Thank you. Uh, you haven't heard anything I've said yet. You might, you might, you might, you might regret that in, in about a minute. Does anybody want any fruit, by the way? Uh, there's a lot of fruit here. Um, uh, so thank you very much for, for having me. Uh, I admire the work of the Shorenstein Center a great deal. Um, and thank you all for, for coming. Uh, I see some friends in the room. I see one enemy. Um, not gonna say is, that, is that a backpack on a chair? He's coming right back. Oh, he is. Okay. Yeah. That's a that's just a bomb. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. I was beginning to get a little nervous. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's, don't worry about it. Uh, we'll we'll we'll, uh, we'll counteract that bomb with fruit. Um, so let me just talk for. Uh, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes, okay. um, and then you know, there's enough people here. We can have a, a good conversation. Um, the um, or since this is about the Middle East, we won't have Q&A, we'll just go right to corrections. Um, <laughs> tell me where I'm wrong for 45 minutes. Um, it wouldn't be the first time, by the way. The, uh, so so I, we were just talking before, and I said, um, I hope this crowd doesn't mind if I'm thoroughly depressing today. Uh, and he said, yeah, try to keep it light, though. Uh, <laughs> the, I want to talk about this article that I, that I just published. It's, it's in the next issue of The Atlantic, and it just went online. It went online a little bit early Sunday night because the editors decided that given the, um, the latest beheading, although it wasn't a beheading of a journalist, it was a beheading of an aid worker, um, that it was particularly relevant Sunday. Um, and I, I want to talk about um, that and about reporting in the Middle East. Um, but I want to I be, be fair and talk about um, you know, sort of the way my view has changed of the, of the work that, uh, that I've been engaged in for I don't know, 15 years or, or, or more covering the Middle East. Um, three little sort of anecdotes. Uh, the third one will be from this, from this uh, article that just give you a sense of where my head is at. Um, the, 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 the first was, it, it came during this, this summer when I got, you know, I was covering the, the Gaza War, um, which was the, sort of the big subject of the summer. And I got an email from a friend of mine who's on, who, uh, who's on TV. Uh, on one of the, the news networks. It begins with a C, um, but I don't want to name it. The, uh, and he said, it was very interesting because he usually doesn't do this work, and he said, he said, this is just astonishing. I've never gotten so much hate and invective for even banal things that I'm saying on air um, than I've gotten covering this. And he said, how do you, how do, you do this? And, you know, it's funny because it's like, 
it's actually not true that if you put a frog in boiling water, they slowly boil to death. They actually do try to jump out. This has been proven. But nevertheless, for purposes of this discussion, let's make believe that the frog stays in the boiling water. Uh, and, and I realize that I am that, 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 that boiled frog in the sense that I don't even notice anymore how much hatred is directed at writers who cover the Middle East from all sides, uh, sometimes simultaneously. Um, and, you know, we, 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 we discussed this a little bit, and he said, this, this has to make people who cover this stuff crazy over time. And, and I said, uh, you know, yeah, I guess, it, I guess it does, but you don't notice it day to day. So it becomes a very debilitating thing. The flip side or the positive side of that is that when you're doing this, and I'm talking to people who are journalists or want to be journalists, when you're doing this about the Middle East, Intense passion actually is your friend also because at least people are reading you. I mean, I spent a lot of time in the 90s covering um, civil wars in Africa, and one of the biggest challenges covering civil wars in Africa is beyond the logistics and the disease and the, and, the, and, the, and the violence, is getting people interested. You know, you never, you never have to worry, this, this room is kind of testament to that, you never have to worry that people aren't going to be interested in Middle East conflict. The, the, but, but again, the, the negative side of that, and the thing that's sort of weighing on me lately, is that, um, is that the hate, I mean, there are, you know, I, I mean, I don't bother counting the death threats anymore, and we have, you know, my, my organization, you know, there's, there's different categories of death threats, you know, the ones that you don't take seriously, the ones that you take semi-seriously. You know, I can, there's a taxonomy of death threats. None of them seem to bother me anymore. Just have to pay attention to them. Um, so, so, so it becomes debilitating over a little while. The other thing that I've been thinking about, and again, this is negative, and, 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 and I don't mean to depress you, but, um, you know, and it's a truism to say that, that the Middle East generally, specifically the Israeli-Arab dispute, but, but generally, is not getting better. It's actually just, get, it's either stasis or getting, getting worse. Um, and, and I was just telling Alex this before. It's, um, I, I, was, I went back to a story I wrote in 1997, a cover story for the New York Times Magazine about the, the peace process, the Oslo peace process. I was looking for a, a particular anecdote, and I started reading the story, um, and of course, because I'm neurotic, I was editing, you know, I was doing editing in my mind and said, I can't believe this lead, and it's terrible, and I wish I could go back and, and fix this story 17 years later, but, and I forgot that I had interviewed uh, Benjamin Netanyahu for this piece, um, uh, who was then Prime Minister, um, and I'm reading the quotes, I'm reading the things that he said to me, and, and they're, they're echoing in a kind of very current way, and, and I realized that, that the things that he said to me 17 years ago for this story are things that he said to me three months ago, the last time I interviewed him, in the same Prime Minister's office in Jerusalem. And I thought to myself, okay, so it's 17 years separating these two interviews. He's saying the same things. The situation is actually worse, specifically and generally. And like a lot of people who went into journalism, you go into journalism for a lot of reasons. One of them is because you think that in some small way you could try to move the world forward, move issues forward, find solutions to problems. And I thought to myself, okay, you know what? 17 years is a, is, is, is a long time and this is proof. It's not total proof, but it's total, you know, it's proof to me that, um, you know, a lot of what I've done is, is for naught. Maybe I've educated some people, maybe I've broken some stories. Um, and I've done other things in that, but I was thinking to myself, you know, after a while, and this is very common in, in, in our field, in the, in the small group of people who've been doing this for a long time, um, there's a prominent New York Times columnist who's well known for his coverage of the Middle East, and I've talked to him about this, and, you know, the, there, there's a reason he writes a lot about climate change. You know, um, because, and you know, and last year I wrote my first large story about climate change, and you know, again, it's, it's, it's another depressing problem without seeming solutions, but at least it's another problem, you know, and, and, um, and, and, and so, you know, there, there's, there's this that's been weighing on me. Um, the thing that's really weighing on me is this, and this is the subject of the article that I just published, uh, is that something has, has fundamentally changed in the, in the way that we write about jihadism generally when I we took this out of the piece my editor said don't use this word because it can be interpreted in the wrong way and you'll see why um, but in my the first draft of the piece I wrote about my history of covering jihadist movements um, I, I noted in a flip way that it in many ways was fun 
I mean, there's something, you know, when you're a young journalist and, and somebody pays for you to go fly to Pakistan and then rent a car and drive from Quetta to Kandahar to go interview the, the leaders of the Taliban, that's fun. That's exciting. And, that's, and it's, it's thrilling in a kind of way, especially when you actually land um, the interview. And there is this um, quality, when I was doing this work in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, in Pakistan and Afghanistan mainly, but, you know, in, in Lebanon and Iraq and, and Iran, there is this, uh, there is this uh, quality of visceral excitement when you, when you spend an evening with a group of people who lead organizations that are, that are committed rhetorically and in actual fact to, to murdering Americans, for instance, and you get out alive um, and you get out with interesting information, first-hand observations about people who, at that point, especially Americans, especially before 9/11, couldn't imagine existed. You know, it's not in our. It, we, we had, you know, we had before 9/11 this kind of impoverished imagination about what the world was was like. Um, so that it, that was it was thrilling and interesting and new and and fun. A couple of things have happened. Um, you know, I was um, even after Danny Pearl was was murdered um he was a acquaintance a friend of mine he actually helped me in some of my early reporting in pakistan uh a, a lot of us me included thought that um it, it was the exception that proved the rule like like the, the literal thought beyond the horror and the tragedy and the literal thought that i had was those guys broke the rules like the people who killed danny pearl broke the 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 contract because there was always a contract between terror organizations and journalists. You know, there's a transaction. You know, I go to you, I write down accurately what you say. I carry that back to my audience. They're happy because they believe that they're right and so that their message is going out. I'm happy because I get to show how appalling they are. Uh, but, and, and everything was working. And, and, and it was a, there was a ceasefire and Dexter Filkins, who is a, a very good friend of mine, actually... I put this in the piece. We, we met on the runway in Kabul in 1998. That's the first type of place we ever met. Uh, you know, Dexter, I, I quote him saying in this piece that, you know, we always thought that we were, you know, surrounded by, uh, there's a paraphrase, but, you know, in kind of a protective bubble. Like, you know, no, nobody would harm, they know that we're American journalists, and why would you harm an American <coughs> journalist? It doesn't make any sense. So Danny was still the, the, in my mind at least, the exception that proved a rule. ISIS changes everything. Um, and um, I have a, you know, a, a, a personal, uh, very unhappy angle on this. Uh, you know, for, for, for years, uh, this is how you know you're getting old when people who seem young come to you for advice, right? Um, you know, five or ten years ago, people who are, you know, graduating college at their college newspapers, Kennedy School, wherever, uh, come to me and say, ask me, you know, how do I get into this field? Because it does seem exciting and thrilling from the outside. Um, and, you know, and I, I would, uh, you know, and if they seem suitably competent and suitably ambitious and suitably smart, like they weren't going to just go do stupid things. Uh, and let me parenthetically <coughs> say, and I always say this when I talk about Danny because I don't want people ever to think that Danny Pearl was a careless person. He wasn't a careless person. He, he was unlucky, but he wasn't careless. Um, but if I, if I judge the kid I'm talking to to be, you know, a reasonably smart person who can take care of himself, I say, look, this is, this is the king's life, to borrow Mank from Mencken. You know, this is, this is great. Somebody pays you to go talk to the most interesting and extreme and crazy people in the world. What's better than that? If, you, if you're a journalist and you want to see, you, know, you want to get people's secrets and you want to understand the world. Um, so I would tell them, you know, go learn Arabic or go learn Farsi or, you know, and go set yourself up in Cairo or Baghdad. And, you know, this is how you do it. And you're going to have to subsist on, you know, uh, you know, rice and hummus for a while, but it's, but it's, it's thrilling and exciting. Um, one of the people several years ago I said this to was Stephen Sotloff. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I didn't know him well at all. I had met him in Israel. And he seemed like the classic model of the kid who is going to just take the world by storm and, and go out there and do excellent reporting. And he did excellent reporting until he was captured by ISIS and then, and then beheaded. And so I've made a decision in my own life. I'm not telling anybody ever again, like, don't follow my path because something, something very, very important has changed in the Middle East. Um, we used to be protected. The unwritten rule is, has, has gone away and now we, you know, and, and I think it's part of, and this, we could talk about this, I think it's in part due to the sort of 
increasing brutality of global Sunni jihadist movement. It also has to do with the fact that, that there's no need for the middleman anymore. Uh, I mean, ISIS communicates perfectly well through YouTube and, and Twitter uh, and, and Facebook. It doesn't need us. And so uh, something radical has shifted in the way some of these terrible groups have, have, have seen us. And, and so I, I can't in good conscience tell anybody to go anywhere near this conflict anymore. Uh, and, and by the way, the other conflicts. I mean, somebody asked me the other day, you know, what I thought about going to Yemen. And I said, I used to love going to Yemen. But um, I'm not going to tell you to go to Yemen. You know, it just doesn't, it doesn't work in the same way. There are incredible negatives to this. I mean, I, I think it's very, very important for America to have American journalists on the ground interpreting and understanding and trying to uh, figure out these problems that affect us in, in, in huge ways, direct and indirect, but I'm not going to ever again tell somebody to go risk their life for, for a story. It's just, it's just not going to happen. Anyway, have I totally depressed you? Because I'm depressing myself. I better stop before I... But, I mean, so, so that's, that's the, the, new world, the new world we're in. Um, and, you know, journal... And it's just a reflection of a general unhappiness across the, 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 the greater Middle East. You know, and, and it, it, it's just, um, it's, it's beyond journalist control to, to change that. And, and, you know, so, so I've been very, very vocal since Stephen Siloff was beheaded. I've been very, very vocal, and Foley, obviously, too, uh, very vocal about, about making the argument to people in management, friends of mine, you know, across journalism, that, you know, this is ju it's just not worth it anymore. Uh, and so I, I think a period in the history of the American journalistic encounter with the Middle East is over. Uh, and I don't know what's coming next, but it doesn't seem good. Well, I wanted to ask you, take my prerogative as, a, as the moderator today, to ask you what is coming next. If this, I mean, are the, are the institutions that you've been talking to responsive? Do they agree? Are oh, the, yeah. Are the, are, the, are the reporters unwilling to go, or are they unwilling to send them? Where does this go? Where does this leave us in terms of? I don't want to talk about my own organization. But I mean, you know, you know. No, but I mean, just in the in the ranks of people you know. There are always people who want to go, and you know, and the truth is, if I were twenty years younger, right now, I would probably think that I'm, you know, more impervious than I am, and I would think I, I could figure my way through this problem. Um, I think, um, look, if you're a publisher or a news executive, I mean, for a whole host of reasons, mainly the fact that you're human, you don't want to get that call from the State Department three in the morning saying, look, this thing has happened. Uh, we can't find your guy. Um, and I think the, the people I know who are in management uh, understand that, and I think you're seeing, um, you're seeing the most important war going on in the world right now, the, the, the combined Syria-Iraq catastrophe, um, go substantially uncovered because of that. But again, I'm not going to argue against it. I mean, you, we're at the point where journalists are in danger if they spend time even on the Turkish side of that border because these groups will grab you over there. I mean, it's not, it's not a healthy thing. That said, there are a lot of people, and I know people at the networks, um, who who still go in? Um, you know, part of the part of the trick, the main trick here is to you know is to figure out who's who's leading you. You know, who's taking you in? Who your who's your fixer? What is the arrangement made? My my old rule, by the way, um, and this is a rule that I used to good effect in Pakistan. My my rule was that if um, if the interview is coming together too easily, it's a bad sign. You know, if, if they say no, 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 meet us at meet us at five here, and and there was and there was no back and forth and no you know anxiety on their part, and and there weren't ten changes in plan. I thought to myself, this is getting too. I would I would blow off things um, and move hotels that same day just because I thought you know you get a you get a you get a sense of it. Um, but I mean, in, in the, the 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 short answer to your question is, I think especially after these these videos. Um, I don't. I can't imagine a, a, a single publisher, a single news executive, thinking that it's worth it. Does it make any difference what the nationality of the reporter is? Well, yeah. I mean, in in the following sense, the Europeans um, pay ransom. 
I, I, I mean, I mean, let's let's. I mean, President that, that, Obama may be paying ransom. I don't think he's paying ransom. I mean, did you, there was a piece in the paper today about rethinking the hostage sort of policy. It's a bad idea. I mean, and the, he's been. I mean, in my most. I want to phrase this carefully. In my most recent understanding of American policy is that um, that it's a bad that, that it's broadly considered to be a bad idea, um, and not only that. I know that the Obama administration has had hard words with American allies over this practice. I mean, look, there were 16 Europeans held by ISIS. 15 of them got out through through the payment of ransom. Millions of dollars that went into the coffers of ISIS, which is already the richest terrorist organization in the history of the world because of its access to oil. Um, I would hope that, you know, if I ever were kidnapped, nobody would pay ransom. I, I wouldn't want that on, uh, I wouldn't want to, even for that short period of time that I'm alive, I wouldn't want to live with that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would think that would be terrible because that just encourages, uh, that just encourages the worst kind of behavior. Um, so, uh, Yes, you know, it's marginally easier for other nationalities to do this, but in, in ISIS, we're dealing with something that's... ISIS feels like a new, new thing. It really does, in, in, some, in, some, in some key ways. It really feels like it's not... Um, it's not derivative of Al-Qaeda in a kind of way. I mean, it is derivative of Al-Qaeda, but, but it also feels very new in their approach to the world. Uh, and, and we don't know enough yet to know how safe it would one day be to actually interact with them as journalists. So from your perspective, has ISIS been strategic, tactical, smart, ultimately not smart in adopting this hyper-terrorism of beheading and putting them on YouTube, which is united everybody against them all at the same time that they're using it as a recruiting vehicle. It's united everyone against them except the thousands and thousands of people who want to join ISIS. Yes, yeah. okay. Uh, I, I, I mean... Uh, so what, what does that, is that worth the trade-off? I, I, for them. I mean, I'm talking about it for them. Yeah, no, 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 I understand. You know, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm not a formal advisor to ISIS, so I can't, <laughs> you know, so I can't comment. Uh, but, uh, I mean, if I... <coughs> Look, uh, unlike Al Qaeda, I mean, this is an interesting. You know, there's this there's this misnomer that ISIS is you know nihilistic. You know that this is that this is pure nihilism. Um, it's the, I think the opposite is true. They're utopians. I mean, they they, they have unlike Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda had a neg Al Qaeda had difficulty recruiting. I think in some cases because it was a wholly negative program. We're gonna blow stuff up and then we're gonna go back hide in our cave, and then we're gonna try to blow some stuff up and then we we'll go hide in our cave. ISIS is completely different. ISIS, we're building the caliphate, and they actually have succeeded in, in in you know in a marginal ephemeral way at least to to you know uh, seize and, and control territory. They're issuing currency. I mean, you know, they, they run large swaths of, of Syria and Iraq. They're the strong horse to borrow language from Osama bin Laden. And so groups around the Middle East are saying, well, we're going to ally ourselves with, with ISIS. Um, I think, I mean, I've watched, it's a professional hazard, I guess. I've watched all of the videos, including the last one, which is the most remarkable video uh, of all, not because of the Cassic the, the situation, which we have seen, um, but the... Um, it is a 16-minute video designed to communicate to young Sunni men that your hatred for the Shia has a place. Like, you can come to us and we will let you fulfill your fantasy of vanquishing and annihilating the Shia. America is, and Europe is kind of a sideshow in this particular video. I, I would say, so far at least, um, you know, they're, they, they've done two things with this, with these tactics. One, they've scared the hell out of everybody. And, you know, they could, they could plausibly look at the world response to what they do and think of it as fairly underwhelming, because it is fairly underwhelming. I mean, this is a group that, that actually has instituted slavery across a broad swath of the Middle East, and you would think in the 21st century that the world, in response to the wholesale enslavement of females, of minority groups, um, might respond with a bit more alacrity than it's responded, right? So, you, you know, you, you can sit in the high councils of ISIS and say, look, we're getting away with slavery. You know, I mean, the slavery. 
It's crazy, but but there you are. So 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 maybe they don't. Maybe they're not so scared of the Western response. Um, and the second point is that it's a remarkably effective recruiting tool. Let's think of think of who the target audience is, and then and then and then move from there. They're very very successful at getting people out of out of Europe, uh, especially to come and, and and join their cause. I mean, ultimately, you'd like to think that um, that level of brutality um, eventually provokes such a response that it's. It's brought to an end, but I haven't seen that yet. It's probably premature to say that. Mm. Let me open it to uh, students first, and then we will open it generally. Hi, yes, my name is Natalie Brand. I'm a mid-career student here at the Kennedy School and also a journalist myself. So given this changing landscape, how do we cover the region and the war? What would be your advice? And my second question is, given all of your experience and coverage on the ground, what would your advice or counsel to the State Department be and those working on foreign policy? Oh, I don't advise the State <laughs> Department either. God well, no, know. but I mean, yeah. what, just given your insight, what are some of the takeaways? Um, you know, the, the coverage question, let me do with that one first. The coverage question is, is interesting to me because, um, you know, there was rightfully, I think, on the part of advocates for Israel this summer, this feeling that, you know, during the Gaza War, the five weeks or so of the Gaza War, 2,000 Palestinians were killed, about 1,000 civilians, right? In that same period, I think it was, somebody will correct me if my numbers are off, 6,000 Syrians were killed in that same period, 6,000 as a small subset of the 200,000 plus. Um, but all of the coverage, all of the international media attention was on, I mean, forget what's going on in Central Africa, forget other places in the world, but even in the, in the narrow frame of the Middle East, all the coverage was about Israel and, and Hamas. Um, a lot of advocates for Israel said this is proof of bias. Now, in some cases that might be true, but what it actually was proof of, it's proof of access. You know, if you have a camera, you have to use the camera. If you have a network, you've got to show pictures. And and so and so this is this is this is the challenge. You know, this is often what we think of as bias in the in in uh, in the media is is, is about opportunity. Um, I don't have uh, I don't have. I'm mean, thank God I don't have to figure out how to cover. Look, there's enough on the internet that you can cover a lot of what's going on on the internet. There's a, there are enough people who are experts and who are who are communicating social media into these places that you can that you can get this stuff. And I don't want to. <laughs> there are ways for people, I don't recommend this for Americans, obviously, but there are ways for people, journalists of other nationalities, to work their way into Kurdish areas and, 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 and cover what's going on. Look, what's, but, but again, I, I know the problem, I don't know the solution. The problem is, let's say, take the Yazidi minority in Iraq. They are actually the target of a genocidal campaign mm -hmm. by a group. Um, thousands of their women have actually been enslaved. It seems to me to be the most important humanitarian story in the world. I mean, another, you know, you want a depressing thought. I mean, it, it, it's, uh, and, I, and I want to write something along these lines, but it, it's, you know, it makes you wonder if, you know, anybody has actually absorbed the lessons of the post-Holocaust world. I mean, or the post-slavery world, right? I, I mean, it seems to be the most important thing. And just because you can't get pictures... Doesn't 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 absolve you of of the need to cover it. I would like to see the story of Yazidi slavery on the front page and at the top of every website every day, because there's no more in my mind pressing humanitarian issue in the world than than this. It's 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 a moral impossibility in the 21st century that this is actually taking place, and that nobody is marching in to to go free these women. Um, the State Department question. I mean, how do you? It's very hard because, uh, you know, many of the president's instincts are, are correct. Um, the first instinct is that we cannot solve this. I don't think he very willingly came to that formula. We want to destroy, uh, ult degrade and ultimately destroy ISIS. Uh, ISIL, he, you know, they, they call it administration. Uh, <coughs> I, I don't think he actually believes that that's possible. I don't believe mm -hmm. it's possible. Um, in part because it's a powerful organization, in part because this is a, it's not really about the organization, it's about a shape-shifting ideology that grafts itself onto groups all across the Middle East. Um, 
that said, I always come back to my, you know, I'm, uh, I suppose I'm dispositionally interventionist and would like to see the world actually respond to humanitarian catastrophes um, in a way that it hasn't. The one thing I would say, just on, and I've written on this as, as, a, as a policy matter, is that, you know, the root cause of ISIS is Assad and, and Iran. Uh, I mean, and, and so if you're dealing, ISIS is a symptom. ISIS is a... ISIS would not exist if the Assad regime hadn't done what it's done over the past three and a half years to the Sunnis of, of Syria. Uh, and so if you're not going to deal with the root cause, um, you're not going to get anywhere. Dealing with the root cause doesn't mean you're going to have success. And one of the things I think, and this is a this is a lesson that I think President Obama has absorbed. You know, every every president, every every administration is a reaction to the previous president administration. The lesson that he derived from the Bush administration is that just because we want the Middle East to look a certain way, doesn't mean we're going to get to have it look that that way. And uh, to his critics, that's a formula for powerlessness and passivity. But I think you can make the plausible argument that. America, especially post-Iraq, is neither e equipped, uh, uh, neither has the money, the knowledge, the, the wherewithal to actually try to continue going into dysfunctional Arab countries and remake them. And so, you know, I'm much more cautious about, on the one hand, I'm totally contradicting myself because I'd like the world to march into northern Iraq and, and Syria and rescue the Yazidis, for starters, right? Um, on the other hand, I know that the world is what it is, and I know that America is what it is, and I certainly know what Europe is what it is, um, and and that ain't going to happen. And so, you know, I, I think that the president's caution is, right now in Washington where I live and work, you know, it's now the sort of received wisdom that he's tragically passive, right? Um, I'm not so sure that a full-throated, a, a full, full-on tackling of the Syria crisis three and a half years ago would have changed the situation in a way that would have made us happy. Yes. So you mentioned a bit about increased access with the conflict in Gaza this past summer. Yeah. Um, do you think that this increased access in the print and broadcast media landscape has changed the American public's viewpoint on um, the disproportionate use of uh, force this past summer, specifically with, with regard to um, the, the uh, death that count that toll with women right. and children in Palestine, and also um, with regard to uh, the severity of deaths in such a short period of time. Do you think the American public's viewpoint has shifted due to this increased access? Well, before you answer, we ask that you identify yourself. Sean Dayfosh, uh, MBP1. Okay. I don't know what MBB1 is. What uh, is yeah, uh, first year. Kennedy School Street. Oh, okay. <laughs> Speaking in code. Um, <laughs> the, uh, is that a new organization that I need to know about? The, uh, the, the, um, the, the polling so far has is not shown. There was a very interesting thing that just happened. I don't know if you noticed this, but Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, just sent a delegation to Israel recently, army delegation, to study what he called... Um, Israel's restraint in dealing with uh, in dealing with Gaza. Um, when the State Department spokeswoman, remember the State Department's position was that Israel reacted too severely. A State Department spokeswoman was asked, um, "What do you think of Martin Dempsey's statement that Israel responded appropriately?" Um, and she said, "Well, our position remains that Israel went too far." And it's like it, it, there, you know, and it's interesting, and it's interesting, and there was a lot of back and forth about that because he is America's top military officer, and and she is not, and so there was this interesting thing. Um, I, I don't want to get into the disproportionality argument. I, I would say that. I would say that if, if there had been cameras on the ground in Dresden or Hiroshima, we would have had a negotiated settlement with the Nazis and with the and with Imperial Japan. I mean, the the the, the, the pictures overwhelm analysis in some ways, and I'm not saying that's necessarily good or bad. I'm just noting the the, the fact of it. Um, on the specific question of its changing opinions, the polling is showing. No, uh, except uh, in like the 20 to 29 age group, um, and certainly among Democrats more than Republicans. Um, the interesting thing about this, I mean, this is, I, I'm, I'm interested in this sort of not ideologically but analytically. The interesting thing about this is that uh, the U.S. when it went to when it decided to engage in Syria, um, 
uh, and again, this is a story that if Israel had done this, it would have been on the front page of the New York Times. When the United States itself does it, it doesn't get the same amount of attention. It loosened its own rules for, uh, for, 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 for the, the creation, let's say, of collateral damage. In other words, you know, it, it has a very specific set of rules when it's operating in the tribal areas of Pakistan. Uh, and it loosened those rules for Syria and Iraq, in part because it understood, I mean, the Pentagon understood, that it wasn't going to achieve what it needed to achieve uh, against ISIS if it kept to these, these, these rigorous rules about civilian casualties. Um, I'm giving you five answers that aren't directly related to your question. Um, but I, I think we should never underestimate the power of pictures to shape a narrative. On the other hand, I don't know that the, the narrative, that the Gaza war has significantly shifted the narrative in the United States yet. I mean, let's, if you look at presidential politics, uh, you know, right after um, the Gaza war, I interviewed Hillary Clinton, um, and it actually, the problem with doing interviews that make news is that they make news about one thing. This is the interview in which she said that don't do stupid shit isn't, the, isn't a motto for a great nation, and then she had to apologize to Obama for telling the truth. Um, um, <laughs> But in this interview, this long interview, she, she, she struck a very hawkish position on, on Gaza. Uh, and the Republicans, probably with the exception of Rand Paul, well, even Rand Paul has moved significantly, uh, are, are striking even more hawkish positions on this. This is not just a reflection of uh, a desire to get Jewish votes. Obviously, if you look at the polling, when, when Gallup has polled this subject for 44 years. And I ask the same question every year, uh, you know, which side do you sympathize with? I'm asking American voters, uh, which side do you sympathize with, the Israeli side or the Palestinian side? And it's usually been four to one, Israel, and that usually doesn't change. We'll see over time if that changes, but, but um, looking at where politics are moving in 2016, I don't think we've seen a significant shift. Yes. Um, your comment about Secretary ID, please. Oh, sorry. My name is Mitch Elva. I'm a first-year master of public policy student here. Oh, okay. before, oh that's what that stands for. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I, I worked at the State Department was an Adams Morgan resident before. So oh, okay. Um, I want to ask a more general question about what, what makes you such a skilled and effective journalist. And oh, please, go on. You've had some several recent high-profile interviews where senior officials have made... All involving the word shit, by the way. <laughs> All involving the word shit. Yeah, It's a theme. You know, King Abdullah basically oh, that, he didn't say shit in that one. Yeah. every Middle Eastern leader. He yeah. criticized the old dinosaurs and the East Bank tribal leaders. Yeah. That was, by the way, the first story I ever wrote that created an actual riot. No, 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 you know, because after that story came out that, that all these tribal leaders went in front of the palace and they had, I don't know where they found them, but they took stuffed dinosaurs. They had like toy dinosaurs and they started waving them at the king's palace. I was, I was very pleased with that. I thought, that, how creative, you know. Anyway, go on, sorry. Yeah, 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 that's my, that's my crowning achievement as a journalist. So you got that interview, you've got uh, the Hillary Clinton comment about not doing stupid stuff, it's not an organizing principle. And recently, last month, you had a senior unnamed Obama administration official calling Prime Minister Netanyahu, and I'm going to quote here, chicken shit. You could quote. Right. So uh, how do you get people to say stupid shit? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, no, I get them drunk. Have you faced blowback from any of this stuff? I mean, all this yeah. is sort of on the record. Well, what does blowback mean? Right, I mean, like emails? You said you've, you've misinterpreted what I was saying. Or all right, so you want like a, yeah. my intentions. Chicken shit caused a lot of a lot more anxiety than I thought. Again, it's I had that in a story that had to me more substantive thing. I mean, it, I, you know, I had several people telling me that Netanyahu has told them that he has written off the administration. I think that's a big deal with two years to go in administration. Um, but you know, people people think it's titillating that somebody used the word chicken shit. Um, by the way, I was on Face the Nation on Sunday, and Bob Schieffer looked at me and he said, "Do you want to tell us now who said it?" And I was like, "What are you?" Yeah, I want to blow up my career on national TV, but it was good because he has that folksy like, "Hey Jeff, so who told you that?" You know, remember when Connie Chung did that to Newt Gingrich? Just, just between us, yeah. tell me. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, maybe this is more like on, on a sort of a practical, technical level than than you need, but I, I really do believe that um, you know, the first time a journalist meets a subject, it's a little bit stiff and, 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 and formal and there's the, the guard is up. The second time, the second time a journalist meets a subject, it's, hey, how you doing, Jeff? It's just the nature of, of humans. Um, I've known King Abdullah for 15 years. 
Um, I've known Hillary Clinton for a long time. I know I've covered the Obama administration since before it was an Obama administration campaign. Um, and um, people get comfortable. And, and also people want to talk. They want to they say things. You know, they, they want to get them out there and they want to test the, the limits. Often it doesn't work. I mean, you're naming things that worked. I mean, there are a lot of times when, you know, I tried mightily to get somebody to make news and they just wouldn't, you know. <laughs> I mean, so it's not, I, I don't want to oversell, you know, the, whatever techniques it is that, that, that I use. And, you know, you also have to remember, you know, uh, people always ask, after the King Abdullah interview especially, people said, did he know what he was doing? And I said, mm -hmm. he's the king of Jordan. I think he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, and if you look at that interview, it's pretty strategically clever. He also happened to be right about a lot of things um, in that. But uh, it's interesting, a after that, I don't want to go on at length about this, but after that, there was this moment. <coughs> so I did, that, those are about, that, that came off of about six hours of on-the-record interviews with the king, that, that, that story, in which he dissed Morsi and he dissed Erdogan and, you know, um, and afterwards, I had been, tra I was actually traveling with Obama in the Middle East at the time that this broke, so it was kind of chaotic. Um, but what happened was the palace started leaking to Al Jazeera. I think they leaked to Al Jazeera. They said, well, you know, the, 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 that Goldberg took the quotes out of context. And then that spread to the BBC. <laughs> and so very quickly I realized what was going on. And I called up some people I know in the palace pretty well. And I said, you know as well as I do that these are accurate, full paragraph statements of what the king said. But if you would like, I will upload the audio files <laughs> of all of the on-the-record portions of this onto the web. You know, no, because like I'm not going to be attacked anonymously for getting something wrong when I didn't get it wrong. And then, miraculously, <laughs> CNN and the BBC and Al Jazeera stopped reporting that the Jordanians were saying it was misquoted. But, but that's the classic, you know, that's the classic sort of blowback that you would get. Yes. Uh, I'm Sam Salkin. I'm also a first-year MPP student at Kennedy School. Um, I know we've been talking a lot about foreign affairs. Actually, um, we're going to go into your greatest hits. One of my favorite stories you wrote is the one about um, the things you carried through airport security, oh, uh, security yeah. theater. So I guess this kind of marries the uh, domestic and the international. I'm curious, um, airport security is criticized on all levels, from the logistics of it to the indignity of it. I'm wondering, based on what you know of the world and what you've seen over the past few years since you wrote that story, um, you know, is that going to change? Are we, you know, are we in this permanent security theater state? Um, and, you know, is the threat real? Well, that's kind of a, a very broad question, but just curious, right. sort of, you know, six years later. How you I brought my own music with me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Um, the, um, so this is, this is a story I wrote several years ago already. Wow, thank you. Thank you. You could follow me around and remind me of things that I've done because I don't remember. I, I have no idea. I have no I, I couldn't remember that I interviewed Netanyahu, you know. I, I, uh, I appreciate that. The, uh, in which basically I just went onto airplanes with knives for like several months and carried like all kinds of crazy gels and I, I, oh yeah yeah I care you know where they took out I went for secondary screening once and I had like a fight because you know I whenever I go to um, terrorist groups I like to like collect their tchotchkes you know like uh, and I had this huge Hezbollah flag and I, and and I and they laid it out on the table and and literally literally I think I had a like a pair of tweezers and the, and the TSA agent was like you can't bring those tweezers onto the plane. and I said you know this is a it says you know this is the party of God they're a designated terror whatever you know um, but it was fun and I just proved you know I was trying to prove a point which is that it is security theater at the I mean the short answer to your question is um, I mean two things are happening one is a you know a permanent negative trend and the other is a positive trend I mean TSA is 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 working through a system where you know once you become an accredited traveler or a trusted traveler or whatever um, you could go on those short lines which is like the blessing for anybody who does it obviously um, so they're trying to actually be responsive to to the public but no I mean on a political level it's very very hard to roll back a security measure once it's been put in place for all of the obvious reasons um, and and that's why you know I think that 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 the, the what the TSA has been doing um, is kind of a bypass around that once they know who you are or once they think they know who you are although I went for my TSA interview you know you go for this global entry interview and I was really I was I you know I was ready 
I'd studied and I, you know, had come up with all kinds of excuses and alibis. And they, you know, they make you write a list of the countries you've been in. And like, so I said, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and I get long, you know, Yemen, you know, eight times and, you know, whatever. And, and, and literally the guy said, why were you in Cuba? <laughs> uh, and, and I said, "Really? What is the 1970s? We're not hijacking anymore in Cuba, you know." And that was it. So I don't, I don't know what this interview is, but, um, but I, I don't think it's the nature of government to, to sort of say. I mean, the, 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 it goes to a broader point about the way we deal with the terrorism. You know, it's like nobody's ever straight with us about the nature of the threat, the limits of the threat. The things we have to do about the, you know, and it, it's like you can't have an adult conversation about it anymore. Um, and this is so they'd rather just, you know, add on whether it's you know domestic surveillance issues or, or airport behavior that just makes it unpleasant to fly. Uh, you know, they they they'd rather not talk about what's what's actually going on on a deeper level, and they'd rather not sort of say, look, terrorism is you know, to some degree, something that we're not going to be able to forestall. Our, our goal as a society is resilience uh, rather than 100% security. Uh, but, you know, anyway, I'm glad you read that story. I had fun doing that. I made up fake boarding passes. Like, you know, because the whole... No, no, no. Like, you can make them on your, on your printer, you know? And, and I, you know, I, I, you wave through every... It's just shocking. But my... my, my Sorry, my, 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 my basic theory of airport security is, is that uh, if a terrorist plot has matured to the point where it's operative in the airport, in other words, if the, all that's separating an, uh, a successful terror plot uh, from, from completion, uh, five guys in blue shirts, then it's too late. That's why I think most airport security is useless because if it's gotten to the point where they've gotten that they're ready to get on a plane or put a bomb on a plane, they're pretty good, and they fooled the greatest and and most expensive surveillance and intelligence and military system in the history of the world. Yeah. Hi, uh, I'm Laurie Penny. I'm a Newman Fellow and uh, journalist for the New Statesman and other places in the UK. And um, so I, I've not travelled extensively in the Middle East. I'm, I'm kind of at the beginning of my career. But, you know, scrolling through some figures in my head, it's, so the, the recent estimate is that it's, um, there are 35 million people living in modern slavery right now, many of whom are working in the U.S. in um, agriculture and sex work, various other forms of work. There are currently 2 million black men in prison working for nothing, um, or almost nothing. There's more black men than were enslaved at the height of slavery. And you know, every year in the United States, almost four, uh, sorry, over 300 um, black people are shot by police in public places. And given these figures and others, I'm wondering what it is in your, um, I mean, obviously you, you have a long and distinguished career, and what is it that it's, what, what is it that gives the United States the moral imperative to go in and stop slavery in, when it's happening elsewhere in the world? Not that there's any spin on that pitch. Um, <laughs> I, since I don't speak on behalf of the United States, I don't feel compelled to, 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 to grapple with that. I would say that it's A, I didn't say that it was only the United States that should go in, and B, I, I, I would, I don't go out of my way to look for arguments, but I would argue with you that, that, that the, what's happening to, that, that the Yazidi genocide that, that the capturing of, the killing of males of families and the capturing, imprisoning, raping, and selling into marriage of Yazidi women is not equivalent to um, what happens in the Massachusetts state penal system. I don't think that's morally equivalent. But onto the, onto the, 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 the larger point, um, I don't think that uh, people are compelled um, to be morally perfect before they intervene <coughs> in someone else's life. I mean, you could be a, a, a an embezzler at work um, and volunteer in a soup kitchen. You know, uh, I mean, you, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't necessarily feel that that uh, one has to achieve their own moral perfection uh, before they go out and try to help others. Yes. My name is Roberto. I'm a journalist from Brazil and a student here at the Kennedy School. My question is about your relationship with sources in general, from an ethical perspective as well. So, 
you cover very sensitive topics, Iranian nuclear program, peace process, etc. Sometimes, do you see yourself in a difficult position in terms of relying too much on a specific source or being afraid of publishing a story because it will make someone furious and maybe it will, it will make things more difficult for you to publish on other stories, etc. And especially given the experience we had here with the Iraq war and... Yeah. I mean, every day. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's not... Um, I mean, you're a journalist. You know, the, the, the job is to find out accurate information and publish it. You know, it's not, to, it's not to worry about the consequences of that. You know, if you believe, in, if you believe that, that telling the truth is its, uh, is its own goal and that it makes society better, ultimately, um, not to sound self-righteous or whatever, but that's, you know, that, 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 that your, your job is not to worry about the impact of that, with the large exception that, you know, if, if you're going to, by publishing something, actually get somebody killed or hurt, then you've got to be very careful. Look, I mean, the, the hostage issue is the perfect example. I mean, you know, everyone in my profession, we know, we know, you know, we knew the names of the people who were being held. Everybody in the profession around the world held those names because it was in the best interest of those people not to have their, their names uh, mentioned. Um, in terms of source management, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's um, I would like to say that, that I've, I've, you know, there's this, this saying that in, in journalism as in, as in writing that you should write as if it's your last day on earth. Like, you're going to die tomorrow, so you might as well say what it is that you have to say. Um, it's a wonderful theory. Um, it's hard when you cover an issue over time. Um, that said, I mean, I try. I don't, you know, you could speak to this as, as much as I can. You know, I, I try whenever possible to push the story out that's true. Sometimes I get it wrong, um, but it's not, but, but I, I feel, I feel, better about being wrong than, than holding it for some kind of tactical career or source management reason. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if that gets at your question. Okay. Yavuz Bayraş, Ernstine Fellow from Istanbul, Turkey. Based on what you're saying on the reporting operations in areas like, you know, ISIS-controlled areas, which yeah. is like UK now, more or less, hmm. like Britain. Uh, if you were a Are you saying that the UK is ISIS? Because <laughs> that's news. <laughs> More or less. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, anyway, this, this um, based on what you're saying, if you were chief editor, my understanding is that you would not send anyone. What, what, is, what would be your solution for the coverage? Um, I would not send, no, I would not send anyone to, well, I mean, let's put aside the UK question. Obviously, I'd send somebody to the UK. Um, the, uh, no, I, I would not send an employee, or certainly a freelancer. That the, one of the one of the things that's happened in, in journalism that's um, unfortunate is that you know you, if you've noticed that the the journalists who are captured uh, and sometimes killed over the last couple of years have been basically unknown stringers with not very high incomes and not great access. To that. It's not you know the senior correspondents of, of big newspapers or big networks. There's a couple of reasons. One, they're more inexperienced. Two, they're more desperate for story. Uh, and three, you know, the big organizations think through security issues in ways that. So I don't want to. I don't want to absolutely rule it out. I mean, if I had a, you know, Dexter Filkins is an example. Most people know Dexter's work. You know, Dexter's a guy I trust with my life. Um, Dexter's the best one at this game. Anybody I know. Um, if Dexter came to me and said, I mean, eh, you know, I have a plan to get into Kobani um, that that I'm comfortable with. And here's how it works, and I'll get in and I'll get out. I would have to seriously weigh that. I don't want to sound so absolute. Luckily, nobody's ever going to make me the chief editor or anything, so I don't have to worry about this. But you know, I, um, I, I, I a very good friend of mine uh, was killed. I mean, I, I lost a number of friends in Iraq. A very, very good friend of mine, Michael Kelly, who was once the editor of the Atlantic. You remember Michael? Um, um, was killed in in Iraq, and uh, that's a that's a trauma that institutions don't uh, recover from so easily, you know. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself: Is it really worth 
So is it really worth the story? I think it's just a serious question that you have to ask. So are you saying, excuse me, let me jump in. John, I'm John Geddes, I'm a Schoenstein fellow. I, I had received some of those calls when I know, yeah. he died. Yeah. Are you, is you, are you arguing, Jeffrey, that we shouldn't, that U.S. news organizations should not commission or receive any freelance stuff from the Mideast? I think you have to be very careful about commissioning. <coughs> you, you, it's a system built for exploitation. I remember, what it, I remember what it felt like to be a 23-year-old journalist. All I wanted to do was forget the New York Times. You know, I, all I wanted to do was someone to buy something that I wrote. And I knew that in order to, uh, I mean, I, I remember, you, you know, I, I just, I wanted someone to pay attention. And um, you have a need, I have a need, as that 23-year-old. The needs merge, um, but it's, it's incumbent on the guy who's hiring to ask several questions. One is, what am I, you know, is this guy qualified? Is this person qualified? Uh, two is, how, how dangerous is the situation that I'm asking? Three, do they have, are they desperate enough that they're going to use poor judgment? Or are they going to use poor judgment because they're dumb? Four, what am I going to do for them when they get in trouble? I mean, that's another issue. There's not, it's not the legal issue as much as the moral issue. You know, it's like, and the Times, thank God, takes care of its people, takes care of its people. Um, some places aren't so great at taking care of the people. I mean, so uh, I think the system is built for exploitation, put it that way. Does it, at this time, in this theater, does it mean, does it require different roles? Yeah, I, I just think it's new. I, I really do. I mean, you know, like I said, Danny should have been a wake-up call. It wasn't quite the wake-up call that, uh, that it, it should have been. Um, but, yeah, and, 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 I mean, luckily for the, for the times, you know, you've got the best people. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of them. Uh, and... I've seen people walk away from opportunities, quote-unquote opportunities, quite often. And I think the Times is an organization, no matter how hard-charging the editor is, I, I mean, you don't want, especially Michael Kelly, Danny Pearl, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, especially knowing the history of, of the last 15 years. Uh, you would like that story very much, but if your guy in the field says, you know what, I ain't going to, uh, I'm, not, I'm not going up to Miran Shah or something like that. Yeah, you know, you're going to let them, you're going to let that slide. Yeah, and then I'll Hi. get you. Um, Ellery Biddle, I'm a Berkman Fellow and an editor of Global Voices. And I'm wondering, could you talk about local journalists working? I mean, there are plenty of journalists, Syrian journalists in Syria still, yeah. not nearly as many as there were before. Right. But a lot of people are doing small projects online and through small radio stations. Right. Like working, I don't, in my role is at Global Voices is mostly working with those kinds of people, right. bloggers, etc. And we actually don't see a ton of um, effort from US-based journalists to connect with these people. Oh, that's interesting. I, it surprises me again and again. I'll get called to you know, do an interview about some issue that one of our right. readers has written about there. I'm like, why don't you well, most journalists are lazy. You know, it's like there's a, I mean, we know a, that. That is <laughs> like Maybe you'll grab a couple tweets from someone on the ground, or you know. But the, now that's journalism, <laughs> copying <laughs> tweets. Well, what I'm saying no, is that it's frustrating to see. I, I agree with you. Less, yeah. There could be a lot more effort to really build trust and connection. And, and, and by the way, I, I mean I think there were a, a couple of different questions, including yours, that that I, I could have answered the following way, which is that we in our America-centric, Eurocentric sort of way, um, don't think about those groups uh, as the as the best source. Part, part of it is is you know when you're hiring from seven thousand miles away a Syrian stringer who somebody says is a good guy, but who knows who is you know who knows what his background is, who knows what it, first forget issues of accuracy and, and and could be working for a particular government or could be working for um, so you have problems. Probably a lot more time could be spent doing that initial vetting and then really building those people up uh, as, as, you know, they, you're still responsible as the overseas news organization for their safety if you're asking them to do things, but it's at a different level because they're from that place 
uh, and and they are in that they are part of that story in an organic way, unlike say a kid from Harvard who decides that he wants to be a stringer in Syria. Um, I don't have a particular solution to your problem except to to say that that it's uh, it's a very worthy it's a very very worthy idea, and it solves a lot of problems at once. If you could if you could build them up and build their build awareness of them up in the American media. One of the problems is that so many of them have to stay anonymous for the obvious reasons. Quick questions from you and you. Um, Matt Heinemann, also a Shorenstein fellow. Um, you talked a lot, and I'm convinced um, that a big part of the change is, in fact, the fact that this, this the, the fact that terrorist organizations no longer see that they need news organizations yeah. as middlemen. Um, but isn't it worth taking it a step further, um, in the sense that you can't prevent you know, ISIS from putting up a video online somewhere? But the overwhelming majority of the people who actually see that video are coming through Google, they're coming through Facebook, they're coming through YouTube, they're coming through Twitter, they're coming through Bing. Don't large websites that are funneling most of this audience, don't they have some moral culpability too in the way that they would if, in, in terms of not hosting other kinds of abuse videos or other kinds of you know, operational planning? Yeah, I mean, now you're getting way outside my well, I mean, it's 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 outside my comfort zone because uh, I don't cover this. I know that this issue exists, and you know, and and they would, all these organizations like to think of themselves as just utilities in a way, as neutral platforms, and whatever passes through them passes through them, and they're not in charge. Um, and I'm also ambivalent about the idea that people shouldn't see these things. I have to tell you the truth. Um, I learned a tremendous amount about ISIS by watching this 16-minute video that they put up a couple of days ago. Um, I know it's now sort of the conventional wisdom that we should isolate this from the world. Um, it runs against my, obviously it runs against my belief that we're journalists, we're about bringing information to light, whatever, how horrible the information is. Um, but I, I, you know, As a human, however, um, I don't want to see that. I, I, and I, as a father, I don't want. I don't want the remotest po chance. I don't. I don't. I want to risk the remotest possibility that one of my children will stumble on um, a high-definition, well-shot beheading, because I don't want that to go into their brains. Because you can't get. Can't. I mean, one of the problems of this profession, as you know, is that you can't unsee things. And so I, there are things that I've seen that I would love to unsee. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm really torn by, I mean, your question is a very complicated question. Um, I can't speak to the, to the, the responsibility of these internet providers, um, but uh, it, it's complicated because we have to know what these guys do. Celestine, quick. Uh, sorry, uh, Celestine Bolin, sorry, Celestine. Um, Glad I'm being nice to the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> So my question is about uh, what should be done in cases when a, hostage, a journalist has been taken hostage. You mentioned the Europeans who've paid and 15 of them got out. Right. You also mentioned that the New York Times sort of knows how to take care of its own. Right. So I'm just wondering. It's not foolproof, obviously. What, yeah. No, I mean, but what is, you know, what in the kind of both behind the scenes or on top of the scenes sort of options are there? For instance, I think of Europe, in addition to paying, you know, there will be often big public campaigns. Um, right. And I just saw the movie Rosewater last night, which obviously had an effect for the Iranian. I mean, it's a different situation. But right. does that help? Is that good? Um, or is there are there sort of secret negotiations that can can help uh, in cases of powerful organizations? Right. Well, well, the best the best option is SEAL Team Six. Um, the next best option um, is. Uh, Apparently, and, and you know, there are people who have been studying this very carefully for two years in this, in this horrible process that we've been going on. There's been this widespread belief that publicity is bad for, um, for these people. Uh, one of the reasons publicity is bad is because ISIS, obviously, is impervious to international opinion. Uh, I mean, you're not talking, even the North Koreans respond in kind of ways that ISIS doesn't seem to respond. I mean, you know, this, this, this guy who was just executed was apparently a sincere convert to Islam who came to Syria in order to help Sunni refugees. 
I mean, that, so we're talking about, uh, you know, who is that international campaign directed against? Uh, I think it will come out, I, I don't know. I mean, I hope that there are people working on stories now about what the administration has done over the past couple of years to, to work on these hostage issues. I know there's been criticism from the Foley family already that they didn't do enough. <laughs> I don't know enough about it to comment. Uh, I'm, I'm dubious about internet, uh, public campaigns uh, because they could just make the, 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 the price tag higher, the ransom price higher. Uh, they risk bringing information about the hostages to light that you don't want to have to light. Apparently, not that it mattered in the end, but <coughs> no one in ISIS knew that Stephen Sotloff was an Israeli citizen. That was remarkable that that information was kept sealed for two years. Uh, that would have been instant, I mean, extensive torture followed by death much sooner. Um, uh, it, it, but also, I think you just have to talk about what, what, what you're dealing with the group. This is not, ISIS does not seem so far to be a group that cares, going back to this question, cares about what people think. We are going to be having three lunches and speakers this week. Um, tomorrow in this space, Fritz Mayer, professor from Duke, is going to be talking about narrative politics and the medium of the story. At 3 o'clock on uh, Thursday, Jeff Madrick, a former Shorenstein fellow, is going to be talking about seven bad economic ideas and how they hurt us all. Uh, Today, we have had a significantly profound uh, experience, as far as I'm concerned, and it's a great honor to be sitting next to you, and uh, we are great admirers, and thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you.